Last week, uh, Jason preached from one of the key passages in the Gospel of Mark. It's Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. Really a linchpin, a turning point in Mark's Gospel. After Peter makes that confession, Jesus goes up on the mountain. He takes Peter and James and John with him, and he is transfigured before him. And uh, Moses and Elijah join them, and the voice of God the Father proclaims, This is my Son, and whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is a glorious and a powerful passage, and it's the passage that is immediately prior to the one that we will consider this morning. But what I want us to see and to think about is the contrast between these two passages. The glory of the transfiguration and the suffering that lies at the bottom of the mountain. So let's read this text, Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. Hear God's word to us today. And when they, Peter, James, John, and Jesus, came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And then he asked them, what are you arguing with them about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and fell And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw a crowd, and Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's pray. Lord, help us as we look to your word this morning. I pray that by the ministry of your spirit that your word would be a mirror to us. That it would reveal what is true about us. That as we look to it that we would see our need, that we would see our need of a savior And that that need would drive us to Jesus. And so, Lord, help us all. We all come in different places uh, this morning. Some of us are tired and distracted. But, Lord, wherever we are, I pray that you would meet us by your Spirit. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The last painting that was ever done by the Renaissance master, Raphael, was called The Transfiguration. This painting is considered to be one of his greatest works, and it hangs in the Vatican Museum today. At the top of the painting is the scene of Jesus' transfiguration. Jesus' face and his 
clothing are shining bright. There's a glorious cloud behind him. Moses and Elijah on either side, and the three disciples are bowing down at his feet, covering their eyes because they cannot bear the glory of what they are seeing. But Raphael's painting also captures our passage this morning. At the bottom of the painting, in contrast, it's a very dark scene. You have this father holding in his arms a child whose eyes are rolled back in his head. And there are nine disciples that are gathered around this father and son, and the disciples are pointing to Jesus. It's a beautiful and a powerful painting. You have the glory of the transfiguration. And you have suffering at the bottom, and you have the pointing disciples connecting these two scenes. Peter, James, and John had seen the glory of the Lord on the mountain. But they enter back into reality when they come down. The spiritual high is over. The mountaintop experience is over. Gone was the voice of the Father. Gone is the transfigured Jesus. Gone are Moses and Elijah. They left the power of the mountain to face the chaos that greeted them at the bottom. On the face of this, this passage looks like a healing to us, and it certainly is healing. But what I want us to think about as we consider this passage is how does this passage show us how to connect to Jesus? How does this passage show us what it means to know Jesus? How do we have access to the power and the glory of a transfigured Jesus? This passage shows us what it means to be close to Jesus, and I want to look at that, answer that question, how do we connect to Jesus in two parts. First is that we see our need Second is that we respond in faith. So first, we connect to Jesus by seeing our need. I want us to look at three characters, the first part of this passage, and look and consider how they're all needing something. All of them, life has not gone how they thought it would. They all find themselves in a place in which they are not able to do something that they really want to accomplish First, take the boy who is possessed by a demon or an unclean spirit. We like to talk, we don't like to talk about unclean spirits uh, in 2021, but Mark certainly doesn't have a problem talking about unclean spirits. It seems like every time that it's my turn to preach in the gospel of Mark, there's a story about an unclean spirit, and so I've become very familiar with them over this fall. But if we take the Bible seriously, we must admit that there are supernatural evil beings known as Demons, they do exist. And the Bible presents a very complex view of what it means to be a human being. Our problems are never simply reduced to spiritual or just physical. In the Scriptures, we see that demons are stirring up and aggravating and magnifying effects of a fallen human nature. And we see that in this passage. But what's important to remember when we see demons is that what is noted in that is that Jesus is Lord over the demons. Jesus is Lord over every unclean spirit and over every illness and every disease. But think about the powerlessness, think about the weakness of this little boy. As you read the passage, your heart is filled with compassion and pity for this child. It's really heartbreaking. This child can't talk. He's having seizures, foaming at the mouth. There is this demon that takes control of his body and his mind, and he does things 
that he hates, that he would never want to do. And it's been going on for a long time, since he was a little boy. He's been cast into fire and into water. He's burned himself, and he's almost drowned. Just think of what life must be like for this kid. Think of all the stares that he gets. Think of all the ridicule that he faces when he is around other kids. The terror that the other kids have when they are around him because they don't know what's going to happen to him today. This kid lives in his own inner hell. And I'm sure that he has imagined a better life. A life without demon possession. A life without mental illness. But nothing is working. He's imagined a life that is free from these destructive behaviors, but he is powerless to improve his condition. What about this boy's father? You can tell that he loves his son, and your heart breaks when you think about it as a parent. Can you imagine the number of things that he has tried to do to heal his boy, to make things better for his son? Think of all the nights that he has laid awake in his bed, blaming himself. This has got to be my fault, that I did something wrong to bring this on him. What did I do to make him like this? Luke adds in his account of this passage in his gospel that this was his only son. Can you imagine the number of times he's begged God to trade places? of the pain that this father has experienced. But his father hears that Jesus is here. Jesus is healing people. And so he brings his child to Jesus, only to find that Jesus is on the mountain. Jesus is not there, but his disciples, his disciples assure him, we've received the power over every unclean spirit. Jesus has given us authority. And so don't worry, we can heal your son. But nothing his disciples can do can make a bit of difference. And again, he's left disappointed. And he thinks, what's wrong? Everyone else is getting a healing. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with my son? Why can't they do for him what they've done for others? He's used every bit of power under his command, but nothing works. His son's condition hasn't improved. But also think about the weakness, the need of the disciples that were around this. They thought these nine disciples thought that they had this healing thing figured out. They thought that they were able to handle whatever came their way. They thought that they could do the ministry of Jesus without Jesus. At the end of the passage, Jesus says that this kind of demon only comes out with prayer. So they were trying to do a healing. They were trying to perform a healing without praying, trying to do the work of God without the power of God. They were self-assured in their ability to heal this boy. But you also wonder, what was it like to not be in Jesus' inner circle? They were in the twelve, but they were not in the three. Peter, James, and John got to go up in the mountain. They got to see Jesus in his glory. And why weren't they included? But to make matters even worse, they come off the mountain. And Jesus finds them right in the middle of not doing what they were commissioned to do. There were nine of them, and they probably huddled up, and they were trading secrets. All right, this didn't work this time. What do you think is going to work this time? But nothing they did would work. 
And you can imagine them just looking at each other, just thinking, what on earth are we doing here? This used to work when Jesus was here. Now we can't do anything. And only to make matters worse, you have the Bible-thumping know-it-all scribes who are around them. Just looking at them, they're to witness it all. We have nine ordinary guys. These guys weren't seminary trained. They weren't formally trained. And the scribes are over there just laughing it up, mocking them, not for them not being able to heal. Saying like, yeah, these guys are just a bunch of hillbilly rednecks. What are they doing trying to do, to do healings without Jesus there with them? Can you imagine the humiliation that these disciples must have felt? They're up on stage and they forget their lines. It's finally their turn in the game and they fumble the ball. And Jesus walks in and he says, guys, what's going on here? And the father of this child says, your disciples blew it. They couldn't do anything. They weren't able to heal my son. The disciples wanted to heal this boy. They wanted to give this father what he wanted. They wanted to prove the scribes wrong. They wanted Jesus to be proud of them when he returned. But we have none of that. Do you see the neediness in this passage? you see those who are in need? What we see in this passage is what we've seen over and over and over in the Gospel of Mark. It is the needy who get Jesus. It's the needy who understand Jesus. Do you want to connect with Jesus? If you want to access the power of Jesus, if you want to be close to Jesus, if you want to receive the mercy and the grace and the compassion of Jesus, don't come to Jesus with your resume. Don't come to him with your intellect and your power and your money and your knowledge and your morals and your religious badges of honor. If you want to connect to Jesus, come needy. Come empty. Just think about what we've learned thus far in the gospel, what we've seen thus far in the gospel of Mark. Who gets Jesus? Who connects with Jesus? It's the lowly fishermen who are called to be his disciples. It is the lepers. It is men with unclean spirits. It's paralytics and tax collectors. It's a man with a withered hand. It's hungry people in the wilderness with no food. It's a demon-possessed man who lives among the tombs. It's a chronically ill and bleeding woman. It's a sick little girl. It's a foreign woman who's begging for crumbs under the table. It is a deaf man with a speech impediment. What do all of these people have in common? They're needy people. These are not powerful and prideful people. These are foolproof sinners. They are the weak and the cast-offs. Just think about what we've learned thus far in the Gospel of Mark. Who doesn't get Jesus? Who doesn't understand Jesus? Who does Jesus reject and push aside? Who are his harshest words for? They're for the proud. They're for the powerful. Jesus' harshest words are for the Pharisees. They're for the religious, for the people who think they have their lives together. He wants nothing to do with people who think that they can do it on their own. If there is one thing that we have learned in the Gospel of Mark thus far, it is that if you want Jesus, you've got to know your need. You've got to be needy. If you want Jesus, get in touch with your need, not your strength. 
This is the opposite of everything that the world teaches us. The world around us, how are you supposed to connect with power and glory in the world around us? You hide your weakness and you show your strength. You project competence and confidence and charisma. You advance with people, you connect with people by showing them what it is that you have to offer. Needy people don't get promotions. Needy people don't climb the social ladder. Needy people don't get the glory, but needy people get Jesus. In our part of the world, we live in such affluence that it is easy for us to insulate ourselves from feeling needy. Wealth equals power, or so we think. We've got the spending power not to feel needy. If we want it, we can find a way to get it most of the time. Our affluence can keep us from feeling that we have any needs at all. That in, but unless we are needy, unless we know our need, we'll never understand Jesus. If you are proud and self-sufficient, you'll make Jesus into a tool that you use for your self-improvement. Jesus is a means to an end for you. Unless you are needy, Jesus will never be beautiful to you. He'll never be a savior that you collapse into. You will just try to make him useful for your own means. If you are self-sufficient, what we do here in a worship service doesn't really make sense to you. Only needy people will confess their sins. Only needy people will receive a salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Proud people want to earn it. Proud people want to have a little skin in the game. Proud people want life hacks and inspirational thoughts. But needy people want a Savior. Needy people want Jesus. But once we see that we are needy people, what is next? I want to move on to our second point. What do we do with that need? Being needy, having need is essential, but it is not sufficient for connecting to Jesus. What is it that we do? Our need must drive us to Jesus. Our lack of power leads us to desire and to want Jesus and his power. Our lack makes us look to Jesus and his sufficiency. And we see that with the father of the child in this passage. His need led him to Jesus. Here is a man who knows that he can't fix what he needs most in life, and so he goes, he brings his son to Jesus. But this is where a lot of us end up getting tripped up when it comes to trusting Jesus, to faith in Jesus. We think that trusting Jesus means that we've got to have everything figured out. That trusting Jesus means that we come to him doubt-free. We come to Jesus full of faith, without hesitation, without wavering, without fear. And we think that Jesus' saving action on our behalf is dependent upon, it hangs upon, the strength of our faith. That Jesus acts in direct proportion to the fervor of our faith. If you have a little bit of faith we think we get a little bit of Jesus. If you have a lot of faith, well, then you get more of Jesus. We believe, and we're tempted to believe that we get out what we put in. That when faced with our need, that what we need to do is just have a little stronger faith. 
we need to pray more and pray harder that there's something that we're not doing that's not activating the power of God. That if I just had more faith, God would love me and he would answer my prayer. Do you see who is at the center? What is at the center of that mindset? You are. I am. That we think that the work of Jesus ends up being about who we are and what we do and not about him. But what I love about this passage is that it shows us the exact opposite is true. The Father in this passage shows us that the object of our faith is infinitely more important than the strength of our faith. The Father in this passage is not a paragon of faith. He is filled with unbelief. He is not even certain if Jesus has the willingness or the ability to heal his son. He comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, if you're able, please show compassion to my boy. This man is not a picture of strength. He is a picture of weakness, of doubt. He is not strutting up to Jesus full of faith. He is coming to Jesus and collapsing at his feet. He tells Jesus, Jesus, I I want to believe I want to believe. Will you help my unbelief? D.A. Carson is an author and a professor, and he told this uh, illustration at a conference a few years ago, and I'm going to alter some of the details for our context. But he says, picture in your mind that there are two Jewish men who are talking to one another uh, in Egypt the night before the first Passover. And so if you remember the 10th plague, uh, in Egypt is when God's people were enslaved in Egypt. The tenth plague was when God said that he would strike down the firstborn of everyone in Egypt unless the people would kill a lamb and they would put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And when the angel of death saw the blood on the doorpost, he would pass over that house. Now, so picture in your mind these two men. We'll call them Tommy and Jimmy. And so Tommy looks over at his friend Jimmy and he says, hey, buddy, are, are you a little nervous about what's going to go on tonight? Are you a little bit nervous about this angel of death thing? And Jimmy looks back at his friend Tommy, and he's got this really puzzled look on his face. And he goes, well, of course not. Why would I be nervous? God told us what we are to do. Moses, by, God told us by Moses exactly what we are to do. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. What's, what's the big deal? And Jimmy says to his doubting friend, well, haven't you slaughtered the lamb? Don't you have the blood on the doorpost? Haven't you cooked the meal? Aren't your sandals ready? Aren't you ready to eat in haste and leave? Don't you trust God? And Tommy says, well, well, yeah, I've, I've done all of that, but don't you remember the other nine plagues? Do you, do you remember the, the blood and the Nile? Do you remember the flies and the locusts and the boils? It's pretty scary out there. God's sending plagues to where we are. Isn't that a little scary to you? And he says, you know, I've just got one son. I've just got little Tommy Jr. And it took us a a long time to have him. And, And I don't know what I would do if we lost our son. And Jimmy, I I know that you've got four sons and you love them all, but this just feels a little different for us. I know that, that I'm not going to sleep a wink tonight. I am so nervous and anxious about this. I'm going to be pacing back and forth all night long. And I just can't wait for this day to be over. And Jimmy scoffs at his friend and he says, bring it on. 
I trust the promises of God. I'm going to sleep like a baby tonight. And so what happens is that night the angel of death swept through the land. Which of these men lost his son? The answer is, of course, neither of them lost his son. Was little Tommy Jr. the next morning, was he any less alive? Was he any less protected? Was he any less saved because of the doubts and the fears of his father? Not one bit. Death did not pass over those boys on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith that was exercised. Death passed over them because of the blood of the Lamb. That is what silences the accuser, not the strength of their faith. Our faith will never be strong enough to save us. But Jesus is strong enough to save us. The shed blood of Jesus is the foundation of our assurance before God, not the intensity or strength of our faith. Just the smallest and the weakest faith gives us all of Jesus. Faith in Christ that is mixed with fear and uncertainty and doubt is faith that connects you to the full saving power of Jesus. And isn't this good news for all of us? Aren't we much more like this Father than we would care to admit? We wonder and we doubt whether God really cares for us, whether God will really do anything about what we are facing. We would much rather trust in our own strength than to trust in Jesus and admit our need. But how can we know that this is true? You might say, well, this sounds great. I know he healed this man. I know he healed uh, this man's son. But how can I know that God really cares about me and what I am going through today? How can I know that Jesus is willing and able to help me where I am today? How does Jesus help you in your weakness? By becoming weak himself. The end of this text takes the shape of death and resurrection. It anticipates that there is a resurrection to come. The text says that Jesus drew near to this boy and rebuked the unclean spirit. He said, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And then it looks like things are getting worse. Jesus says this, the boy starts convulsing, and it looks like, he looks like a corpse. They think that this boy has died. But then it says that Jesus takes him by the hand, and he, lifts, he lifted him up, and he arose. Now, Mark is not playing around here. This is resurrection language. This is the exact same wording that Mark is going to use later in the gospel to talk about Jesus being raised from the dead. Jesus is giving us a preview of the road that is ahead. He's giving us a glimpse of his own death and resurrection. How is he going to heal this boy in an ultimate sense? He will go to the grave himself. He will go to a cross where he will lose all power, the power that he has had from all eternity, the power by, by whose word created or spoke the world into existence. Jesus became powerless so that by faith we might be connected to his power. He became weak so that you and I, by faith, might connect to his glory. So the question that you and I are tempted to ask when we are faced with our need is, Jesus, do you really care? 
Jesus, will you have compassion on me? Will you help me where I am now? The death and resurrection of Jesus answers those questions for us in bold letters. Yes, I care. I care enough about where you are. I care enough about your sin and your brokenness to die for it. I care enough about the sin in your life to take your sin upon myself and to secure for you a future with me in a, in a new world that is free from sin and brokenness. And so if God has provided His Son for you, if He has provided for you eternally, then we can trust that He will provide for you today. As we close, I want to talk specifically to two groups of people who are no doubt here this morning. The first group is people who are not Christians. First of all, I'm really glad that you're here, and I hope you'll come back. Oftentimes when people visit a church for the first time, they visit because there's some need that they feel in life. There's some crisis that they're facing, and I'm sorry for where you are, if that's true of you. But my prayer for you is that you would let this need that you have, you would let this need point you to Jesus, that this need would push you to Jesus and away from your own strength. And what I hope that is that every time that you come back and you worship with us, that you hear the same thing. You hear the good news of what Jesus has done for you, how he meets the needs that you have. Jesus is not put off by your neediness. He's not put off by your weakness. Your weakness is actually what opens his heart to you, and he invites you to come to him. But the second group that I want to speak to are those who are Christians. You're a Christian, but if you had to describe yourself right now, you would say, well, I'm just really bored with Jesus. I just, it just seems really boring to me. There could be a lot of reasons why this boredom exists, but could it be that your boredom is because you don't have a sense of your own need? You are living life with the assumption that you have the power to fix everything in your life. You have, you're living with the assumption that you can provide for all of your needs. You're bored with Jesus because, in a sense, you believe that you're God, that you have the ability to save yourself. And so can I invite you to consider what it is that you need? Because beneath the veneer of your human strength lies a soul that is in need. And the path to deeper connection with Jesus, the path to more intimate connection with Jesus is not through your strength. It actually comes by admitting your weakness. Growth in Christ looks like more dependence and not less dependence. It looks like weakness and not like strength. And so will you again admit your need? Will you turn in faith to Jesus and find that he welcomes you to himself? Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would take this word and that by your spirit that you would bear much fruit 30, 60, 100-fold, that in your hand that, that your word uh, would bear fruit. And Lord, help us to see our need. Lord, and uh, in our need, we pray uh, that you would bring the comfort of your spirit. Uh, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.